Escape Pod. Episode 217. Today's story. The Kindness of Strangers. By Nancy Chris. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your new co-host, Norm Sherman. Yeah, that's right, a new co-host. Now, I know some of you out there may be corrugating your various brows in a dubious manner right now, skeptical of the odd, sawdust, melon, curry-scented winds of change here at Escape Pod, and I'm empathetic to your concerns. You know, I remember when I first heard that they were making an Alien vs. Predator 2, and I was all like, What? Is nothing sacred anymore? What's next? Why don't they just make a constitution too? Or a holy bible too? Then I gave AVP 2 a chance. And you know what? It's a damn fine film. And you know what else? They do amend the constitution from time to time. And Dan Brown just announced his newest book, Temple Scruples, the Bible sequel novel. It's bound to be a bestseller. So... Just give me a chance. You remember back when you were in fourth grade, when you came to class that one day and your hot, busty teacher, Miss Spencer, was suddenly gone, replaced by some weird-looking, balding Latino guy with a frumpy button-down shirt and super tight, olive-colored jeans? Yeah, maybe he was a little awkward at first. Maybe he took a little while to find his groove. Maybe for some reason he always smelled like cured ham. But when all was said and done, you still ended up learning a couple things in fourth grade anyways, right? Now, I'm not saying that Steve Ely's been busted for posting hot nudie pics of himself on HowAboutDemApples.com like you later found out Miss Spencer was, nor am I suggesting that there aren't sexy nude pictures of Steve made exclusively available to $100 a month subscribers to Escape Pod. What I am saying is that I'm Mr. Nunez, and I may smell like ham... But I want what's best for this class, so I'm going to do my best, teaching you how to subtract whole numbers and introducing you to some of the best science fiction stories you'll ever hear. Ever. Speaking of which, on to this week's story, The Kindness of Strangers by Nancy Cress. Miss Cress is the author of 26 books, 16 science fiction novels, 3 fantasy novels, 4 short story novels, and 3 books on writing. Nancy's most recent book is Steel Across the Sky, an SF novel about a crime committed by aliens against humanity 10,000 years ago, for which they would now like to atone. Shaw. Fat chance. Aliens. The story is read to you by Kate Baker. So open up that can of Chef Boyardee and fire up the propane stove, because it's story time. The Kindness of Strangers by Nancy Cress. When morning finally dawns, Rochester isn't there anymore. Jenny stands beside Eric, gazing south from the rising ground that yesterday was a fallow field. Maybe the whole city hasn't vanished. Certainly the tall buildings are gone, Xerox Square and Lincoln Tower, and the few others that just last night poked above the horizon, touched by the red fire of the setting September sun. But unlike Denver or Tokyo or Seattle, Rochester, New York sits, sat, on a flat ground, and there's no point from which the whole city could be seen at once. And it was such a small city. Maybe they only took downtown, Jenny says to Eric, and Penfield is still there, or Gates, or Brighton. Eric just looks at her and pulls out his cell yet again. Most of the others, other what, refugees? are still asleep in their cars or tents or sleeping bags on the dew-soaked weeds. There aren't as nearly as many refugees as Jenny expected. Faced with the choice of staying in the city, such a small city, or leaving it, most had stayed. Devil, you know, and all that. She thinks she might be a little hysterical. Eric walks around the car, cell pressed to his ear. Deirdre would not answer, will never answer again, but that won't stop him from trying. He tried even as he and Jenny hastily packed up her Dodge Caravan yesterday afternoon, even as she drove frantically south, 
even as they were stopped. When the battery in Eric's cell runs down, he will take hers. Jenny, sure of this, if of nothing else, presses her hands to her temple, trying to stop the blood pounding there. It doesn't work. Good morning, says an alien, coming up behind her. Breakfast is ready now. Jenny whirls around and stumbles backward, falling against the hood of her van. This one is female, a tall Scandinavian-looking blonde. Her pink skin glows with health, her blue eyes shine warmly. Her teeth are small and regular. She is dressed like last night's alien, in a ground-length, long-sleeved brown garment. Loose, modest, cultureless, suitable for dissolving cities on any part of the globe. Definitely a little hysterical. No, thank you, Jenny manages. Are you sure? the alien asks. She gestures towards the low, pale buildings at the far end of the sloping meadow. The coffee is excellent today. No, thank you. The alien smiles and moves on to the next car. Eric turns on Jenny. Why are you so polite to them? She doesn't answer. To say anything, anything at all, will be to unleash the rage he's been battling for 14 hours. So far, Eric has held that rage in check. She can't risk it. Here, he says, thrusting a Quaker Oats breakfast bar at her. She isn't hungry, but takes it anyway. Some of us are going to go dig a latrine, he says, not looking at her, and strides off. Two cars over, a woman with crazy eyes fires a 9 millimeter at the alien. The bullet ricochets off her, striking another car's hubcap. People wake and cry out. The alien smiles at the crazed human. Good morning. Breakfast is ready now. Probably the aliens aren't even present. If you touch one, or hit it, or shotgun it, or hurl a Molotov cocktail at it, all of which were tried last night, you encounter a tough, impenetrable shell that doesn't even wobble under impact. Personal force field, someone said. Holographic projection, said another, protected by a force field. Jenny has no idea who's right, and it hardly matters. The same maybe force field was what stopped her and Eric's mad drive south last night. Another transparent wall prevented her from retracing her route. A hundred or so cars were thus invisibly herded into this empty field, their drivers leaping out to compare sketchy information, children crying in the back seat and wives hunched over car radios, their faces in white shock. Bombay and Karachi had been first, vanishing at 2.16 p.m. No explosion, no dust, no blinding light. One moment, reported dazed observers by satellite, the great cities in their vast suburbs had existed, and the next they were gone, leaving bare ground that ended in roads sheared off as neatly as if by a very sharp knife, in halves of temples on the sheer line, in bisected holy cows. The ground was not even scorched. People standing beyond the vanishing point saw nothing happen. Fifteen minutes later, it was Delhi, Shanghai, and Moscow. Fifteen minutes after that, Seoul, Sao Paulo, Istanbul, Lima, and Mexico City. Then Jakarta, New York, Tokyo, Beijing, Cairo, Tehran, and Riyadh. By this time, the hysterical media had figured out that cities were vanishing in order of their size, and by a progression of prime numbers. At 3.16 p.m., London, Bogota, Lagos, Baghdad, Bangkok, Lahore, Dhaka, Rio de Janeiro, Bangalore, Wuhan, and Tientsin, the panicked evacuations began. Most people were vaporized, except that no vapor remained, long before they reached the end of the murderous city traffic jams. Canton, Toronto, Jidda, Abidjan, Shung Shing, Santiago, Calcutta, Singapore, Chennai, St. Petersburg, Shenyang, Los Angeles, Ahmedabad. As soon as he heard Eric call Deirdre in Chicago, over and over, even as he and Jenny had been packing her car, 
He hadn't been able to get through by either cell or landline. All circuits busy. Please try your call again later. Pusan, Alexandria, Hyderabad, Ankara, Pyongyang, Yokohama, Montreal, Casablanca, Ho Chi Minh City, Berlin, Nanjing, Addis Ababa, Pune, Medellin, Kano. Only two United States cities so far. Jenny lived in Henrietta, Rochester's southernmost suburb. The roads were crowded but not impassable. She inched through traffic. The radio turned on while Eric tried Deirdre over and over again. All circuits busy. At 4.01, Chicago vanished along with Omdurman, Surat, Madrid, Sion, Kemper, Havana, Jaipur, Nairobi, Harbin, Buenos Aires, Inkyan, Surabaya, Kiev, Hangchu, Salvador, Taipei, Haifang, and Dar es Salaam. Eric kept calling. He said maybe she was visiting someone out of the city, shopping at a mall someplace rural. She doesn't always have her cell turned on. Jenny knew better than to answer. She concentrated on the road, on the traffic, on the panicky radio announcer relaying by satellite a report from where Houston used to be. Can I have that? A small voice at her elbow. Jenny realizes she is still holding the unopened Quaker Oats bar. The little boy is maybe five or six, sturdy and snot-nosed, but with wide, dark eyes that hold soft depths, like ash. He stares hungrily at the breakfast bar. Sure, take it. Her voice is thick. What's your name? Ricky. He tears off the wrapping and drops it on the grass. Jenny picks it up. Where's your mom, Ricky? Over there. He gobbles the bar in three bites. His mother, a voluptuous redhead in pink stretched pants, sits on the ground with her back against an old green SUV. She nurses an infant from one large breast and watches Jenny. All at once, she bawls. Ricky, get your ass over here! Ricky ignores this. Do you got any more food? No, Jenny lies. Apparently not everyone thought to pack their cars with food. Those that have will run out before long. The low, pale buildings still sit unvisited. Ricky! His mother screams, and this time he leaves. Jenny pulls off her sweater. The morning sun is turning the day hot. She opens her cell to key in her brother Bob's number. Bob lives with his family in Dundee, a small town 50 miles away. His and Jenny's mother lives with them. Jenny's sister and her family are nearby. Bob? You all okay? No, nothing's changed since last night. Jane? You talk to her? Okay, look, I don't want to run down the phone too much. Love you too. When she closes the case, Eric is back. They stare at each other. Now it will come, Jenny thinks. She feels as if she's been carrying a teacup of nitroglycerin across a tightrope. The fall is only a matter of time. But all Eric says is, There's a man here who's good at organization. We divided into sections and checked out the whole wall. No breaks. And it extends as far up as anyone can throw a stone and as far underground as we had time to dig. The force field surrounds the buildings, too. Anything new on the radio? No, Jenny says, not telling him that she hasn't been listening. But he knows his question was not inquisitive, but hostile. He can't help that, Jenny knows as much, but she recoils as if he'd struck her. She's always been too sensitive to rejection. Eric says, I'm going back to help the tunnel crew. Okay. And then she can't stand it anymore. Eric, I am so sorry, but it's not my fault that my family is alive, and Deirdre and Mary... Don't, he says, so low and dangerous that Jenny is shocked into silence. Eric is not ordinarily a dangerous man. One thing she loved about him was his light-hearted exuberance. He walks away, his back toward her, and Jenny covers her face with her hands. It is her fault, will always be her fault. Not that Eric's wife and daughter are dead, of course, but that Eric was with Jenny. 
in bed with Jenny in another city, pumping away on top of Jenny when it happened. He will never forgive either of them for that. They met a year ago at the American Library Association annual conference in Kansas City. Jenny's attraction to him was instantaneous, and so was her glance at the wedding ring on Eric's left hand. But he was so handsome and so charming, and she was so thrilled by the almost unprecedented masculine attention. They drifted together at luncheon held between reference tools for the online generation and collaborative approaches to information literacy. They had a drink in the bar after the obligatory inedible banquet, laughing at the dullness of the speakers. One drink became many. They spent the last night of the conference in Jenny's room, and the next day she'd flown back to Rochester suspended somewhere between euphoria and dread. Two days later she emailed him. Eric had replied and things had gone on from there. Sometimes, if she hadn't had an email or phone call from him in several days, Jenny let herself imagine that he'd told his wife about the affair. He'd told her, and then he'd moved out of their Evanston home, and he was just waiting to hear from his lawyer before he told Jenny the great news. She'd let herself imagine all this in exquisite detail, the scene with Deirdre, Eric's complicated emotions, the phone call to Jenny and how understanding she would be, even while she knew it was not going to happen. Very few married men actually left their wives for their mistresses. Eric adored his six-year-old daughter. He had never even said that he loved Jenny. But she loved him, and she knew it was turning her desperate, which in turn was driving him away. She waited, helpless and all but hopeless, by the phone. She turned up the volume on her computer. You've got mail! so that anywhere in the apartment she would know the instant his email came through. She wrote long, eloquent letters giving him tender ultimatums, and never sent the letters because she knew he would not choose her. It took all her strength to never ask him the fatal questions. Do we have a future? Are you tired of me? Is there somebody else? Somebody besides Deirdre, she meant. She tried not to think about Deirdre, and the effort further exhausted her. Finally, she googled Deirdre and got over a thousand hits. Deirdre was a successful real estate agent in Evanston. She was slim, tanned, smiling, dressed more stylishly than Jenny had ever managed. She grew roses and played golf. Jenny mailed one of the eloquent ultimatums. I think we better end this, Jenny, Eric said gently on the phone. I'm sorry, but this isn't what I thought it was. I don't want you to get any more hurt than it seems you already are. Seems? More hurt? Not what he thought it was? What was that? She found a steeliness she didn't know she possessed. I want to discuss this in person, Eric. I think you owe me that. And he agreed from guilt or compassion or fair play or who knew what. He flew to Rochester on a Friday morning, a return flight scheduled for that evening, six hours in which to end what had become the center of her life. She lured him, there was really no other word, to a farewell fuck, thinking desperately, stupidly, maybe if it's really good, better than Deirdre. But Friday afternoon, Bombay and Karachi disappeared, and a few hours later, Chicago took Deirdre, maybe, and little Mary along with three million other people. And now Rochester is gone, and Eric can barely look at Jenny. She gets into the minivan, but even with the passenger door open, the September sun starts to heat up the car. For something to do, she straightens the blankets on top of the mattress that fills the back of the van. She and Eric, not touching, slept there last night. She checks their boxes of food, bottles of water, two flashlights, and a small hoard of extra batteries. Jenny, no camper, didn't own the tent. Coleman lanterns, propane stoves, she sees blossoming over the field like mushrooms. Communities are forming. Ricky and two other little boys have started a soccer game in the middle of the semicircle of cars. Somebody's dog, barking wildly, chases the boys. In front of the green SUV, three women gossip over coffee bubbling on a campfire. One of them is Ricky's slatternly mother, and the other two look enough like her to be sisters or cousins. Out of desperation, she will go mad if she just sits here. Jenny fights off her innate shyness and walks over. 
The oldest of the women, overweight and sweet-faced, in a Red Wings t-shirt, says, Hi, honey. Want some coffee? Yes, please. The small kindness almost brings tears. Thank you so much. I'm Jenny. Carlene, and this here is Sue and Sherry. Carlene hands Jenny coffee in a thick white mug. I figure we're all in this together, so we better stick together, right? Right, Jenny says unconvincingly. Sherry, Ricky's mother, is studying Jenny as if planning to dissect her. The coffee is hot and wonderful. Sue is as talkative as Carlene. Your husband at the big powwow? How to answer that? Sherry's gaze sharpens. Jenny finally says, They investigated the the wall this morning and found no breaks. Now they're trying to tunnel underneath. That's what my Ted said, Sue says. But he told me he thinks an assault on the E.T.'s building is going to have to happen sooner or later. Jenny nods. E.T. conjures up for her the cuddly and benevolent creature from the old movie, not the beautiful alien mega-terrorist who offered her breakfast, and who may or may not even be bodily present. And assault is an alarming word all by itself. These look like gun people, which Jenny and Eric emphatically are not. Carlene says, If the assholes really do have food in there and... Ricky, be careful! The soccer ball has nearly gone into the campfire. Sherry grabs for her son, who wriggles away with the agility of long practice. She bellows. Ricky! The child darts behind Carlene and grabs her ample waist. There now, he didn't mean anything, Sherry. Don't get your blood in a boil. Ricky, you be good now, you hear? Ricky nods and darts off. Desultory chatter reveals that Carlene is Sherry and Sue's mother, the grandmother of Ricky and the now-sleeping infant, Daniela. Carlene does not, Jenny's eyes, look anywhere near old enough to be a grandmother. Sue is the mother of the other two little boys, non-identical twins. Neither Carlene nor Sherry mention husbands, either present or vaporized in Rochester. Carlene is casually maternal to anyone who enters in her radar, including Jenny. Sherry asks fake, nonchalant questions about Eric, which Jenny avoids answering. After a half hour of this, the coffee is gone, the fire is out, and Jenny is emotionally exhausted. She excuses herself, crawls onto the mattress in the hot van, and falls fitfully asleep. When she wakes, sweaty and unrefreshed, Eric still hasn't returned. She stumbles out of the car into a mid-afternoon chaos of cooking, unleashed pets, gossiping, worrying, grieving. Radio's yammer, although it's clear that groups have pooled electronic resources to save batteries. Women cry. Children either race frantically around or sit in fright in huddles against parents' knees. There are no aliens visible. Carlene comes over, evidently a response to Jenny's dazed look. You need the latrine, honey? Over there, she points. And your husband said to tell you to go ahead and eat without him. He's going to go work on that tunnel and he'll get something later. You got to make sure he eats, Jenny. Some of these men are mad enough to just burn themselves out. Jenny nods. She finds the latrine efficiently and deeply dug behind the field's only line of scrub bushes, divided by a blanket on poles to separate pits for males and females. Many of these people, she realizes, are far better at basic survival than she. Not that that's hard. On the way back to the van, she notices a prayer service of some sort under a tarp strung between two cars, a card game around a collapsible table, and a woman reading a book to a toddler on her lap. All the adults wear the resolute, pinched look of people going through funeral rites and determined to do them correctly, despite whatever they may be feeling. This should, Jenny thinks, be an inspiring model for her own behavior, but instead it makes her feel even more inadequate. How long will Eric stay away from her? The rest of the day, it turns out. Jenny calls her brother Bob on the cell and then sits in the van waiting. The early September dusk falls and a few cars chosen by lottery train their headlights on the low, pale buildings across the meadow. This hardly seems necessary since the buildings glow with their own subtle light. People put on sweaters and jackets and the smell of canned stew fills the air. Three aliens begin to circulate among the cars. Good evening, 
Dinner is ready now. People turn their backs or glare menacingly. Sue spits a glob of sputum that slides off the alien's protective shell. This one is a man, tall and brown-skinned, handsome as an African-American movie star. Sue's husband, Ted, snarls. Get your ass out of here. Are you sure? The chicken Marengo is excellent. Sherry appears with a shotgun. The alien smiles at her. Carlene says sharply, Don't you fire that thing with all these people around. What the hell's wrong with you? Jenny, honey, you want some coffee? Sherry returns the shotgun to the green SUV. Ricky sits beside Carlene's fire, eating a Chef Boyardee ravioli from a plastic bowl, his baby sister asleep in an infant seat on the grass beside him. Sherry has changed from the pink pants and tee dotted with baby spit to tight jeans and a spangled red sweater, cut very low. She has spectacular breasts. Jenny accepts the coffee, but no ravioli. She's still not hungry. In any way, she doesn't want to deplete their food supply. Honey, you gotta eat, Carlene says. Even a bitty thing like you gotta eat. I had something in the van, Jenny lies. Sherry says, not into sharing. Jenny faces her. Would you like some organic yogurt? I have some in the cooler. Carlene laughs and says, That's telling her. Sherry smiles too, but it's a nasty secret smile as though Jenny has revealed dirty underwear. Sherry says, No thanks. Ricky demands more ravioli and Sherry gives it to him, then turns to her mother. Will you watch the kids a bit? I'm gonna go find Ralph. Carlene snaps. You'd do better to stay away from that no good. Sherry doesn't answer, just strolls off into the darkness. Carlene says to Jenny as if Jenny were her own age and not Sherry's. Kids, as soon as I get tits, you can't tell them nothing. Jenny, whose own tits are negligible, had no idea what to say to this. That Ralph will just break her heart, same as the daddies of these two. She picks up Daniela, who's starting to fuss in her infant seat. The information that Sherry, too, is having her heart broken by someone should make Jenny feel more kinship with her. It doesn't. She crawls onto the mattress in the van, trying to read Dickens by flashlight, while she waits for Eric to come back for dinner. She's fixed him a sandwich from the best of everything thrown hastily into her cooler. Two bottles of beer are as chilled as the melting ice will get them. Jenny knows it's a pathetic offering, but as the hours pass, and he doesn't appear to witness her pathos, anger sets in. What right has he to treat her this way? None of this is her fault. Somewhere deep in her bruised and frightened mind, she knows that Eric is staying away because he's afraid of what he'll say if he comes back to her. But she doesn't want to look at this. Looking at it would finish her off. He doesn't come back all night. In the very early morning, anger replaced by frenzied anxiety, Jenny looks for him. Eric is asleep near the half-dug tunnel rolled up in somebody's extra sleeping bag. He lies on his back, his dark hair flopping to one side. And in sleep, all the anger and guilt and fear have smoothed out. Through the grime on his face, snake tear trails. Jenny's heart melts and she crouches beside him. Eric. He wakes, stares at her, and tightens his mouth to a thin, straight line. That's all she sees, all she can bear. She gets up and walks away, making herself put one sneaker in front of the next, moving blindly through the damp weeds. It's over. He will never forgive her, never forgive himself, possibly never even approach the van again. The frenzy of tunnel digging, which will do no good, will eventually be replaced by frenzies of another sort. Any other sort. Anything to blot out everything he's lost. And she will not be able to change his mind. Eric is not strong enough to fight off his own passions, including the passion for self-destruction. If he were, he wouldn't have become involved with her, or with his other women, in the first place. All this comes to Jenny in an instant like a blow. It's all she can do to remain upright, walking. Her cell rings. It will be her brother, but even knowing how cruel she's being, she can't bring herself to answer. As the field comes alive around her, she sits alone in her van, wishing she had died in Rochester.
Another two days and most of the food and water have run out. Except for a few dour loners, mostly armed, people have been remarkably generous with their supplies. There have been no fights, no looting, no theft. Jenny, who hadn't been able to eat, gave most of her food to Carlene, who made it last as long as possible among her small matriarchal band, which now apparently includes Jenny. Jenny doesn't care. Not about anything. Outside help, it's learned through numerous phone calls, was stopped by a second invisible wall about a mile from the camp. Not even a helicopter was able to rise high enough to surmount the barrier. Relatives, cops, and the Red Cross remain parked just outside in case something unspecified lets them drive closer. Most cell phones, including Jenny's, have exhausted their batteries, although a few people have the equipment to recharge phones from their cigarette lighters. Jenny doesn't find out if hers can be recharged. Bob knows that Jenny's still alive and there's nothing else to report. The car radios now pick up only two small town stations, but these report that cities have stopped disappearing. A schedule has been organized and a track cleared to drive cars around the field so that the batteries will not run down and both the radio and heat will still be available. It's a nice balance between using up gas and preserving batteries. Jenny does not participate. Three times a day, aliens circulate around the field, offering breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No one accepts. The aliens are cursed, spat on, attacked, and once, although this is looked on with disfavor, publicly prayed over. Tunnels of varying depth now ring the field beside the invisible wall. None of them go deeper than the barrier, but digging them has given many people something physical to drain off rage and grief. Every once in a while, Jenny glimpses Eric in the distance, working on yet another futile tunnel, or huddled in desperate conference with other men, or with Sherry. Each of these sightings turned her inside out like a sock, all her vulnerable organs battered by the smallest sound, breeze, photon of light. My Sherry never was no good around men, Carlene says, handing Jenny yet another cup of boiled coffee, not meeting her eyes. It's the first time Carlene has mentioned the situation. Jenny doesn't reply. Carlene's kindness is like air, ubiquitous and necessary and equally available to everyone. But even air hurts Jenny now. Honey, Carlene adds, you gotta eat. Later, Jenny says, the syllable scraping her throat like gritty vomit. Carlene goes away, but half an hour later, Ricky appears beside the van, holding a book. He's incredibly dirty, smells bad, and clearly does not want to be there. You suppose to read me this? It's Treasure Island in the original, a book whose flowery language and slow pace Ricky will neither understand nor enjoy. Where on earth did Carlene get it? She must have asked every last person in the camp, must have remembered that Jenny is, was, a librarian, must have cudgeled her slow wits to think of something that might make Jenny feel better. Jenny starts to cry. An old song title fills her head. Roses from the Wrong Man. Carlene is not a man, and this filthy child with his reluctant offering is about as far from roses as possible to get. But Jenny is in too much pain to appreciate the incongruity. She only knows that if it had been Eric who'd arranged this perverse kindness on her behalf, she could have borne anything. But it is not Eric. Ricky looks at her tears with the same alarm as would any grown man. Hey, you, you gonna read me that book? No, you'd hate it. Go play. Released, Ricky gives a whoop and races away, running backward, maybe to fulfill some small boy notion of paying attention to the adult he's been told to pay attention to. No one else is in the center of the field. The cars are doing their daily promenade to charge up batteries. The red Taurus is not going very fast, and the driver slams on her brakes. But not soon enough. Ricky is hit. He starts shrieking to wake the dead. Carlene and Sherry both scream and dart from behind their SUV, Sherry with Daniela clamped to one naked breast. Sue's husband, Ted, leaps from his car and reaches Ricky just as Jenny does. Ted says, Ricky, buddy. The child is wailing and writhing on the flattened weeds. His left arm hangs at a strange angle. 
Ted gently holds down Ricky's shoulders. Lie still, buddy, till we see what's broken. Sherry thrusts Daniela at Carlene, yells something anguished, and throws herself practically on top of Ricky. Ted shoves her off. For Christ's sake, let me see how bad he's hurt. Don't crush him, Sherry. Ted's an EMT, Sue says at Jenny's elbow. What happened? Jenny shakes her head. She can't speak. Sherry says shakily, He was just racing around like always, and fuck it, why does everything always happen to me? Jenny just stares at her. The statement is so selfish, so inadequate, so stupid that no response is possible. A thought forms in Jenny's mind. If this is what Eric refers to me, the hell with him. The next second, she's ashamed of this thought. It's as self-absorbed as Sherry's. She turns her attention to Ricky. His arm is broken. There are no doctors or professional nurses among the refugees. Ted sets the arm using as a splint a piece of wood torn from a chair leg. Ted is obviously no expert at this, but he's resourceful, gentle, and willing to accept responsibility. Everything, Jenny thinks coldly, that Eric is not. Ricky screams like an animal in a steel-toothed trap. The driver of the Red Taurus blubbers apologies. No one blames her. The accident is thoroughly discussed at every campfire, in every tent, on every mattress, in the back of every van. Ricky is given a hoarded candy bar, a precious comic book, and a hefty slug of cough syrup mixed with whiskey to make him sleep. Jenny can't sleep. Lying alone on her mattress, she tries to think coldly about her and Eric, about the destroyed cities, about what will happen now. She can't quite manage enough coldness, but it's better than the hell of the last four days. Somewhere in the deep dark, there's a tap at the window. Eric? Hope burns so sudden, so hot, that Jenny feels scorched inside. She nearly cries out as she fumbles for the door of the flashlight. Carlene stands there, her meaty arms limp by her side. In the upward slanting glow from the flashlight, she says despairingly, Ricky... Jenny stumbles from the van and follows Carlene. Stars shine in the clear, cold sky. Jenny's lighted watch face says 4.18 a.m. The SUV tailgate gapes open, and Jenny sees the usual mattress, a double in this monster vehicle, on which Ricky lies glassy-eyed. Daniela whimpers softly in her infant seat. Sherry is not here. With Eric? He's been like this for a couple hours now, Carlene says in a low, steady voice. He won't drink or eat or talk, and his arm's swelling up and turning all dark. She trains the flashlight on Ricky's arm. Jenny bends over the child who smells as if he shit his pants. Gangrene. Could it set in that fast? She doesn't know, but clearly something is radically wrong. Carlene goes on in that strange, even voice. I can't leave Daniela, and Ted don't know enough to deal with this. I don't know anything about medical matters either, certainly not as much as Ted. Carlene continues if Jenny hadn't spoken. Anyway, Sue's got some kind of diarrhea now, and Ted can't leave his kids, not for good. Can't take the risk. And I got Daniela, can't count on Sherry. Jenny straightens and turns. The two women stare at each other. For a long moment, it seems to Jenny, her universe hangs in the balance. All of it. Eric and vaporized Rochester, Deirdre and Jenny's job at the vanished public library, the running down cell phones and Jenny's mother waiting for her in Dundee, the stars far overhead and the trodden down weeds underfoot in this desperate refugee camp no one planned on. Jenny nods. Together they pick up Ricky and situate him in Jenny's arms. Ricky moans, but softly. He's heavy, reeking, only half-conscious. There is nobody else up, or at least nobody that Jenny sees. In the dark, she carries Ricky the entire length of the field, trying not to shift him even as he grows heavier and heavier, navigating by the pale glow from the alien buildings. Up close, they present rough, cream-colored walls like stucco, but no stucco ever shone with its own light. The buildings all seem interconnected, but Jenny sees only one entry, itself filled with light instead of any tangible door.
She walks through the light and into a wide space, surely wider than the whole building appears from the outside. That is absolutely empty. Hello? Jenny calls, inadequately, and suddenly she can hold Ricky no longer. She sinks with her burden to the stucco floor. This is as hopeless as everything else in her stupid life. She doesn't even like this kid. Hello, an alien says. It's the tall blonde woman in the standard brown robe. She materializes from empty air. Is this little person hurt? Anger rises in Jenny at the cloying pseudo-friendliness of this little person. These beings have murdered nine-tenths of the Earth's population. But for Ricky's sake, she holds the anger in check. Yes, he's hurt. His arm is broken and some kind of infection has set in. What's his name? the alien asks. Her eyes are blue and as warm as the Mediterranean. Ricky. And what's your name? What can that possibly matter? Jenny. Jenny, close your eyes, please. Should she do it? It makes no more sense than anything else, so why not? She has no idea what she's doing here. She closes her eyes. You may open them now. Even before Jenny can do that, Ricky says, What the fuck? He jumps up and gazes wildly around. His arm is whole, the clumsy splint and darkened swelling both gone. His clothes are clean. He shrieks in fear and jumps into Jenny's lap, hiding his face against her neck. His hair smells of sweet grass. Jenny struggles to stand while holding Ricky, who mercifully is too scared to scream. She must stand. She can't face this terrible being from a sitting position on the ground. A table stands beside the alien, an ordinary picnic table with benches, the surface laden with scrambled eggs, toast, sweet rolls, orange juice, fragrant hot coffee. The plastic plates have a pattern of daisies. Jenny goes weak in the knees. She dumps Ricky onto the bench. He clutches around the waist, but then sees the sweet rolls and looks up at Jenny. Eat. She manages to get out. And to the alien. Why? The smiling blue eyes widen slightly. Didn't you want me to repair him? I mean, why did you kill all those cities, all those people? The alien nods. I see. Sit down, Jenny. No. All right. But the coffee is excellent today. Why did you do it? Bombay, Karachi, Delhi, Shanghai, Moscow, all in strict order of size? The meticulousness alone is monstrous. The alien says, Why did that man hurt Ricky when he tried to pull his arm bones back into the correct line? For a minute, Jenny can't think what the creature means. Then she gets it. Are you saying you committed massive genocide for our own good? There were too many of you, the alien says. She sits gracefully on the picnic bench across from Ricky, who is gobbling eggs and sweet rolls with one hand, the other fastened firmly on Jenny's jacket. In one more generation, you would have had irreversible climate change, starvation, war, and suffering beyond belief. We spared you all that. Jenny can barely speak. You did. It was... It was an act of kindness, the alien says. And I know it seems hard now, but we've spared your species an incredible amount of suffering. In two more generations, your altered world will seem normal to its inhabitants. Two generations after that, you will thank us for our intervention. And you will have learned, and you will do much better this time. We've seen this before, you know. Jenny doesn't know. She doesn't know anything. The worst is that, with her book-nourished imagination, she can actually see how that monstrous prophecy might come about. The gratitude of the masses in countries where most people never, ever had enough to eat until the cities disappeared. Religion would help. Saviors from the stars, revered and deified and carried out the will of God, of Allah, of Shiva, in the endless dance of destruction, in order for there to be room for creation. The alien says, as if reading her thoughts, 
You humans have a talent for self-destruction, you know. You cause a lot of your own suffering. It is unfortunate. Jenny picks up a butter knife and hurls it at the woman's eyes. It doesn't connect, of course. The knife bounces off the alien's face, and the only response is from Ricky, scared all over again, and also full enough with good food to have the energy for response. He wails and wraps himself around the still-standing Jenny. The alien stands, too. Don't think we're not sympathetic, Jenny, but we look at things differently than you do. Goodbye. Wait! Jenny cries over Ricky's screams. One more question. Why keep us here inside this invisible cage? What did you hope to learn? The alien answers without hesitation. Whether you were different in small enough groups, and you are, a few hundred of you outside Rochester and Bogota and Chengdu, you're much better beings in smaller groups. It's chaotic out there just now, but you will cooperate better on survival even if you're no happier. We're very glad to know this. It justifies our decision. Goodbye, Jenny. The alien vanishes, then the building vanishes. It's not yet dawn outside, but Jenny hears a siren in the distance drawing closer. Somewhere in the field, the car door slams. She sets Ricky down and tugs at him to walk towards Carlene's camp. The siren comes closer still. Eric and his work crew won't need those tunnels now. Jenny can go to Dundee as soon as Bob arrives for her. He may be on his way now. Ricky tries to break free, but Jenny holds him firmly. He isn't going to get hit by another car, not while he's with her. She has no idea what the future holds for Ricky, for any of them. But now, finally, hatred of the self-righteous aliens blithely playing Old Testament God burns stronger in her than does despair over Eric. It justifies our decision. The hell it does. All those innocent lives, all the grief tearing apart the survivors. Hatred is a great heartener. Hatred and the knowledge that she is going to be needed. It's chaotic out there just now. As Carlene and Ricky had needed her. These things, hatred and usefulness, aren't much. Even if you're no happier. But there's something, and both are easier than love. She brings the child back to his grandmother as the camp wakes and the cars drive in. Hatred and usefulness aren't much, but both are easier than love. I don't know. What do you think? Mandius and Dr. Manhattan from The Watchmen would agree, and hey, you won't see me squabbling with those guys. This story mentions Stevenson's Treasure Island, which I actually read not too long ago. The principal heroes in the story represent virtue, discipline, and compassion, while the pirates, as one might expect from even the most benevolent of them, represent being a bastard. At one point in the book, parrot-clad, professional bastard, pirate Israel Hands tells narrator lad Jim Hawkins, or Kermit, depending on if you prefer your classics in Muppet format, Arr, I never seen good come a goodness yet. Him as strikes first is me fancy. Dead men don't bite. And his lifestyle backs up that cynical worldview. So let me ask you this. Are humans really assholes? Not you personally, of course. I'm sure you're a nice guy, or gal, or hermaphrodite, but all of us lumped together, stranded on island Earth. Cynicism or optimism aside, when you add up the total of human behavior and divide it by the number of items in your list, what's humanity's arithmetic mean? And how can we even interpret that figurative figure without hot, indestructible aliens that look like smoking Swedish babes, or Denzel Washington, to benchmark against, holding a mirror up to our grisly pirate faces while cooking breakfast for us. Maybe we are better people in smaller groups, but we're often more effective in larger ones, right? That's why we have nations. So how do you strike the balance? Heck, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd be able to draft an easy win-win universal healthcare plan for every man, woman, and Muppet on the planet. But I can't. 
That's a job for the U.S.'s current, attractive, confident, African-American head of state. Invincible alien Denzel Washington. Oh, you haven't heard? You must not be watching Fox, then. Oh, yeah, man, the aliens have landed, people. Take a look outside. Do you see Omdurman anymore? What about Surabaya? Where'd Haifong go? What the crap happened to Dar es Salaam, formerly Mizazima, the largest city in Tanzania? They're all gone, man. Time to start loving your neighbor, mateys. Or else you walk the plank. <clears throat> so that's our show. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it or sell it. Just share it with your friends when they're asleep so we can secretly create more pod people with it. Check out our sister podcasts, Podcastle, if you dig fantasy, and Pseudopod, if you dig horror. Our music is used with permission from Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.com. Our closing quotation comes from Dan Brown, who says, Nothing captures human interest like human tragedy. <laughs> <laughs>